I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Karen Hinton. Her new book is Penis Politics, a memoir of women, men, and power. Karen Hinton shares an inside's view, an insider's view of what it's like to be a woman in the newsroom, the halls of Congress, and the highest reaches of American political power. She writes of the toxic brew of ego, entitlement, and bro culture that is especially difficult for women to navigate in politics. She reveals how certain well-known men create a public image as champions of women's rights and equality, but behind closed doors use gender domination to assert their authority. No for never ducking a fight, Hinton was at the peak of her career in 2018 when a catastrophic brain injury propelled her into the battle of her life. Emerging from a coma, learning to walk, talk, and write again, she was determined to speak up, not shut up, on issues involving women, men, and power. She served as press secretary to Andrew Cuomo when he was a federal housing secretary and later to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. And she's also a regular contributor to the New York Daily News. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show, Karen. It's nice to be talking with you today. Yes. Well, we are ending up the year with you. Next uh, year is 2022, and we'll see what happens then and see how far we've gotten. But penis politics, and I just want to say that I think, as I understand, I, know, I don't know if this is still true, you're not allowed to say penis on Facebook, so you're, that you can't, you're, you're not on Facebook because of that. Um, I don't know if that's changed. Well, it's it's a strange situation with Facebook because if I put penis on my post, um, uh, it's okay. But if I take out an ad with penis in the ad, then it's not allowed. I'm not quite sure why that is. I never figured it out. Um, but that was just the rule they had. Now, if I went back to them today and asked them to run an ad, they may do it. But um, I just got so tired of the hassle and uh, trying to understand why they were doing it. Um, yeah. And I don't know, maybe they're shocked by the title, uh, Penis Politics, but, you know, Penis Politics itself is about conduct that's much more shocking than the um, official name of a body part, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that's the body part. About- we're always trying to t- have our children use the word penis and vagina when they're talking about their body parts. That's the healthy thing exactly. to do. Exactly. So- <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a body part, but the meaning behind the title is about uh, discrimination against women, harassment, abuse, and misogyny. And these are things that are really vital and important to our society today. And so why Facebook would want to ban any information about the book as part of an ad, I don't understand. But um, But I do want to emphasize that it's about problems that women struggle with, many women struggle with, from those sort of, you know, harassment such as slapping somebody on the butt or giving them a kiss on the cheek um, in in the workplace to abuses, violence, and rape, sort of the whole spectrum. And that's what my book tries to accomplish. And and it is more than about just modern-day politics. It's it's about powerful men in all walks of life, whether they're politicians or fathers or teachers or coaches, um, professors, your male colleagues. I try to capture that throughout the book. 
Yeah, well, I think you do. You start from the beginning when you were a teenager in Mississippi and uh, all the way up to uh, working for, uh, as I said in the beginning, for Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. Mm -hmm. But you're not just talking about powerful men and powerful men in politics. You're talking about Mm -hmm. really the whole culture, the male culture that dominates, whether you're in high school uh, or you the incident with your uh, with your uh, best friend and the male coach, mm-hmm. but really your own father, uh, just th- sort of that male-dominated society in general, I would say. Yes, exactly. And let me just say that the, the word penis politics or the, the term penis politics is something that I defined in an op-ed for the New York Daily News. And I tried to make the point even then that while my whole life, my professional life, revolved around politics, it really is about something that impacts all women in all walks of life. And it's even woven into the fabric of our lives. We experience it, whether it's at home, school, in a romance, or in sports, or in the entertainment industry. Um, I played basketball in high school. And the head coach of our athletic program um, abused one of my closest friends, Janice. And what he did to her was emotionally and physically brutal. And in many states, a crime. And that was almost 50 years ago. And we still see it happening um, in, in many walks of life. But look at just what's been reported in girls' and women's sports. Um, I mean, so this is this is not just something that happens in the workplace, but it happens in different areas of our lives, even if it's in uh, a marriage or in a father-daughter relationship. I loved my father. He died when I was 14. I loved him dearly. But the relationship that he had with my mother was in part of the time <laughs> because it was so long ago, but she was never allowed to work, and she wanted to work, and he wouldn't let her work. And, uh, you know, I remember things like that, and I talk about that for, for a chapter um, in the book about how she had to struggle with that same dynamic that now today struggle from the time they're teenagers to the time they're my age, 63. So do you think we're still struggling with the exact same issues that we were 50 years ago, even though we have some laws to protect us? I know you talk about Title IX in the book, right. uh, which was right. really important for you as a as a basketball player and then going on to right. miss and playing basketball. Um, but are we, bottom line is, we haven't moved the needle uh, very much? <laughs> Not much. We have moved it in the sense that, hey, women are being elected uh, to political positions. Uh, the number is not huge, but at least it's going in the up motion, not the down. And um, we have now CEO, women who are CEOs and women who do get promotions and women, many women who are valued in the workplace. But this has been a long time coming, and it's over decades of efforts by women to make this happen. And so, you know, when uh, we hear other women today, and I don't mean many, but some women today criticizing women who come out and speak about what happened to them, 
I just, I find that very frustrating because they need to remember the situations that they've been in and the, because it's so pervasive. It, most women experience it in some form or fashion. So we have to be, at least be um, willing to accept the information that the woman is talking about. Now, you don't have to decide if she's correct or not, but at least accept it and then wait to see if there's an investigation or a claim or a charge is underway. Then wait to see what happens. Don't immediately, what's the term that we now use, um, slut shame um, uh, women or blame the victim which is what we just continue to see over and over again. Don't you think we also, as women, need to, well, as you are, getting the word out, sharing your memoir, sharing your story, uh, but we ourselves have to become aware of when this is happening to us. I think there's a lot of, you know, I'm a social worker, I think there's a lot of denial on the part of women that this is actually happening to us, that we are being uh discriminated against and we we accept it we have to get to the point where we ourselves don't accept it and then you can go on to act on it obviously and not not to allow right. it to happen you know what i'm right. saying yes exactly and mothers and fathers in school systems need to be in a place where they are telling young girls as well as their sons um what this dynamic is how to avoid it and how to tell someone about it. And I see that happening in more families than ever before, but it's something that we all need to do. It's almost like sex education. I mean, you know, we want our daughters and sons to understand what can happen if you have sex without protection, right? But at the same time, we want our daughters and sons also to understand that the abuse and harassment and discrimination that happens whether you're in school, college, uh, in a sport, uh, and on the job. We need to tell them and help them understand what that dynamic is. And I think that we've got a lot of sexual harassment training now, but it clearly isn't doing the job because um, we still see it happening. And so as a society... We have to accept this problem and deal with it on a family-to-family basis. I think that's the only way we really get to the problem um, because, yes we, can, yes, we have investigations and, yes, we have charges that can be brought in claims um, and you can go through the sexual harassment training, but there has to be a cultural acceptance that we need to treat women with respect in any situation, and then also as professionals in the workplace. Karen, are there any places, maybe I know the answer to this, but are there any countries, are there any societies, are there any cultures that we can look to and say, whoa, they're doing it right. They seem to have gotten it. If there is, I don't know about it, and anyone listening to this program should, you know, um, go to my website and um, penispolitics.com with the dash in between penis and politics and send me an email and <laughs> let me know because I don't know. Because um, you continue to see it uh, and hear about it and read about it, I Google alert sexual harassment and I get 
a hundred or more emails a day with something happening um, uh, in different countries across the globe. It's not just in the United States or in the UK, but it's everywhere. And I was just on a, um, we were doing a listening uh, uh, tour of women who've had stories to tell about sexual harassment. And um, there were several women from Pakistan talking about it. So I, you know, I, I do, I think it's just, there's no good, there's no one place that's really doing the job. No, I haven't. And I've traveled a lot. I've traveled all over the the world, and I haven't found one, so that's why I was asking you the question. Yeah. I mean, there. Are, <laughs> uh, so, um, we'll keep traveling and well, let me know. <laughs> keep traveling and keep trying to find out. Let's talk about some of the right. specifics in your book, because you talk about not necessarily Andrew Cuomo and, and Bill de Blasio, but you're also talking about somebody who you were, uh, your boyfriend, who you were living with, who you planned to marry, and uh, your experience with him, uh, finding out that he's... Uh, He's with somebody else, and he got her. And she got her pregnant, and right, the deception. Right. Yeah, so that's right. Is that an example you know, of the, the kind of behavior we're talking about? Yes, in the sense that, the, of course, this is a romance, and I'm in love with him, and I want to marry, and I think at the time he wants to marry me, um, but I discover that he has gotten another woman pregnant. She's refusing to have an abortion, which, of course, is what he absolutely wants her to do. She doesn't, and he denies that he's the father, and he won't pay her any child support until she does the, um, is it a DNA? I, I don't know what we called it back then, but, anyway, you know, you DNC. do the test that shows, yes, exactly. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember that. Um but so I'm like, I say to him, you know, our problem is not this baby. Our problem is that you won't take, you're refusing to take care of this child. And this child is yours. I know it's yours. You know it's yours. And you're refusing to take care of the child. And even after he knew he was, he absolutely knew he was father, the test had shown it, he still fought this woman because he was so angry that she allowed the pregnancy to happen, um, that she didn't get the abortion. And so this is the kind of, of penis politics that happens with someone you think you love and that you think loves you. And it can really be a traumatic event in your life. And it hangs on to you. It just doesn't, okay, you, you go date somebody else and you fall in love with them and that's over. No. It's not over. You still hang on to it because you wonder, how could I have not seen what was there? I I just refused to see it. So um, I think a lot, some women go through similar situations and we have to learn how to deal with that and not, and not hang on to it for as long as I did. Yeah, well, we are in the blame the victim culture. I want to talk about, right. in the book, you talk a lot, obviously, you were, you were in Congress for... Uh, what, six or eight years, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that you uh, discuss in the book is these, tra- and I'm going to just quote you, transactional relationships in the halls of Congress. Uh, mm-hmm. how, what does that mean in terms of what we've been talking about? Because I think that's key. It's just, it's um, sort of 
uh, in, I guess it's in the, the behaviors in Congress with male domination and is uh, mm-hmm. embedded in the whole process. Right. Well, in the 80s, most of the members of Congress were men, and they still are mostly men. <laughs> um, but then there were very few uh, women who were in Congress, and the chief of staff were men, and the receptionists were women. And then you had some women in the sort of in-between, uh, but rarely was a legislative director a woman, would be a man, and then the legislative assistant would be a woman. So you're, a woman is always trying to compete and figure out how to get that promotion and, and not just stay in that lower-level job. And back when I was on Capitol Hill, one way, not the only way, but one way, was to form a relationship with either the ma- member of Congress or the chief of staff in the office or someone else who was powerful, um, like a lobbyist. And so those men tended to be extremely flirtatious and uh, always looking to pick up some woman at a reception or a, an event um, and that was a constant. And then women talking to each other about what do I do, what do I say, how do I handle this? And some women um, just did what they thought was the only thing they could do to get promoted, and other women fought it. And that would hurt their career, not always, but often. And I saw it in my friendships with women. And by the time I got to Capitol Hill, um, I had already seen it in my high school, I'd seen it in college, um, and I also had um, had that experience with Bill Clinton uh, when I was working politics in Mississippi, which I can tell you about, but by then I was like, oh my goodness, I have to stay out of this, so I would always just exit the scene, and, it, and I didn't, my networking was harmed as a result. If, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. Now, tell us about your experience with, with Bill Clinton. I, well, I don't think it will come yeah, necessarily as a surprise to your readers. But No, <laughs> right. Um, in, in the South, in the Deep South, when Bill Clinton was governor, many women who were in Southern politics at the time knew he was a womanizer. That was no secret in Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama. We all knew who he was, Louisiana. We all knew that he was like that, um, except I didn't at the time. I was 24 and did not have a, a clue about that type of thing then uh, with, a pop, with him, Bill Clinton. Um, but I am uh, in a bar and we're having a chat. He's there with some other uh, political people. And he starts asking me what I think about, and I'm working for the first black man who's running for Congress from Mississippi. So he's asking me about that race that, and uh, how he's doing, and then also about poverty and uh, illiteracy and uh, racism. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I... No answers to all the tough questions, and I go on and talk about what I think, and he listens to me for 30 minutes or more, and I'm amazed. I'm so impressed that he's given me his time. He's a governor who might run for president one day, 
And I'm just so excited about that. And then he changes course and starts talking to some other people. And at one point, he pushes over a napkin to me. And I opened it, thinking maybe he gave me his signature. <laughs> but it was a hotel, the room number, and a question mark. And I was just astounded. I didn't know what to do. And I folded the napkin back up, and I didn't look at him. I couldn't make eye contact. And I just went to the restroom and threw the napkin away, and and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I said, I've got to get the hell out of here. So I left, and uh, and I never talked about it. For years, I never talked about it. Um, but by the time I got to a Capitol Hill, that would have been four years later, um, I sort of knew how these things worked by then. I had a sense of it, and I knew better just to stay away from those kinds of situations. Well, uh, you stayed away from the situation going to the hotel room with him, but the situation that is created in uh, and sort of in that kind of a venue is it's a real put down. It's like, as you were saying, here I am, I'm yeah. really smart, I have a lot to offer, I think you're into it, I think you're listening to me, and then all of a sudden, this is really what I think of you, come to my hotel room. And that is such a put-down. Exactly. It totally is. And I felt humiliated. I, I felt like, okay, he wasn't even listening to me, or was I not making any sense, and that's why he stopped listening to me, and that's why, I mean, you know, all these things were running through my head at the but time. And also, Karen, I, I, I'm always, I, I don't know if we, this is discussed that much, but Bill Clinton and Hillary, his his spouse, his partner, is one of the smartest people, whether you like oh, her or yeah. don't like her or whatever. So he's chosen to attach himself to this very powerful woman, brilliant woman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, first in her class at Wellesley and and senator from New York and all of those kinds of things. And also has a daughter who also is a very mm-hmm. uh, smart, mm-hmm. uh, successful young woman. How do you reckon, how do you see it? How do you reconcile those kinds of relationships with what happened with, with you and probably obviously to many we're assuming other women uh, in your situation with someone like mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. I think with most politicians, if not all, who find themselves um, flirting or harassing or abusing women in the workplace or not, but it's about it's really about power and control and authority. I don't think it has anything to do with. Um, I think it has to do with I can manipulate the situation and and convince this woman to come have sex with me, and that is is the desire or the passion that I have. It's not really about the sex itself. It's it's not really about the lust. It's about the power and control and authority that a man wants and needs. And to see it play out over and over again, it's the similar description of what the former governor of New York has done, Andrew Cuomo. Um, now, uh, he wasn't as abusive as Bill Clinton had been, but he still enjoyed this kind of 
relationship with now as a former as a governor of New York with very young employees in his office, and that was very abusive of their professional lives because they're trying to make it in that world, just like I was trying to make it in that world on Capitol Hill and in Mississippi politics, um, where they want to do many of the things that the Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo, has done, um, you know, deal with issues around, um, um, you know, minimum wage, with um, parental leave, with um, uh, marriage equality. I mean, these were things that those women cared about. And for him to abuse that relationship in the way he did is very similar to the same pattern that Bill Clinton had. And um, I, I think that's something that Andrew Cuomo enjoyed is just like Bill Clinton enjoyed it. And, and again, it's not about sex. It's about power. It is. It's about power. I guess they always say money and power. And in this case, power, power. I was so dis. You know, I, as I said before the show, I'm from New York. I listened to uh, to Andrew Cuomo every day in the midst of the chaos with the Trump administration and the fear of COVID. And it, he was my stabilizing uh, event right. of the day. And mm-hmm. and you know, and as somebody who also shared my politics as you as you talk about, yeah, right. you know, um, mm-hmm. and then. He has this, I don't, I don't know if it's just this side of him, that's who he is. And so um, it's very co- complex, I guess. How do, what, what uh, I'm asking for answers. <laughs> How do we? Well, I, I think, I, I think it would do him, uh, maybe he already sees a psychiatrist, but I, I think that it is a, um, it is a, a sort of mental illness that, he can't fight because this was a pattern with him. He'd done it over years of time, not just when he hit his sixties and was hanging out with young girls, young women in his office. I mean, this was a pattern. And so it's, it's something that I think it's, it's a mental illness that you have to take seriously and you have to deal with. So if, if, and we need more and more women to speak out about this issue as well as men, um, Fathers and, and mothers and husbands and brothers and sisters need to, you know, when something happens to part a member of their family, they need to, to speak out and be supportive of her. And, um, and at the same time, we also need to recognize the issue as it is, in fact, I think, a, 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 an emotional um, mental problem that some men, not all men, I'm not making a sweeping accusation here. Um, it's just some men, and they need to address it. And at the very least, they need to know they'll get in trouble if they continue to do it. Um, they'll lose their job, let's say. Their company will lose money because women won't work there, or they won't work as hard. They'll just get, they'll go home and say, forget it. I'm not, I'm not giving my all. I'm just going to go and get my paycheck, right? Because I don't want to ha- endure this kind of abuse. Um, so there are consequences to their behavior and they need to recognize it and say, okay, I do need to fix this in my life. And how do I do that? Yeah, and I, I think that's well said. We only have a minute left. I could. This right, is, sorry. I have a lot more questions <laughs> to ask you. I can't ask you the questions, but I can recommend the book. And 
which is uh, Penis Politics, a Memoir of Women, Men, and Power. I mean, we just touched on some of the issues and some of the examples. Right. So people really need to get out there and read it. Well, you're on the right track. And, uh, um, well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you so you. much for the time. I appreciate it. And you can buy my book on Amazon. It's not really in the bookstores yet, but you can buy it on Amazon. And um, Penis dash politics.com is where you can find more information too. Thank you so much, Karen Hinton. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 